Namaste to all of you. Let us continue tonight in the satsang, discussing, elucidating, enlightening, clarifying some of the words and actions of Jesus as presented in the Gospel of Luke. We were somewhere in the chapter or paragraph number 17. There are 24 paragraphs in the Gospel of Luke. So we are about 70-75% through that. And um, Jesus had given some teachings, which somehow we don't see, they were not related in a coherent timeline. He gave some teaching about uh, forgiving your brother. He gave some teaching about... Uh, having faith as much as a mustard seed. He gave, he gave some teaching about the fact that people who do their spiritual duty, they should not be proud. They should not have arrogance. And uh, it was not necessarily part of a certain circumstance of a certain timeline. And now we are back to the thread of the story It says, now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. So he was, that's the important thing, he was on his way to Jerusalem. As we know, that travel to Jerusalem was his last step. Because he spent one week in Jerusalem for the Passover and then uh, all the tragic events, all the formidable events which marked his mission, the end of his mission, occurred. So he is coming close to the end. He is in the last months of his ministry, of his mission. And on his way to Jerusalem, he traveled between Samaria and Galilee. Those of you who are geographically curious, you can see where those two provinces exactly were located. As he was going into a village, ten men which who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Several things come from this image. This leprosy, this leper afflicted people, they were living together. Until the 1940s or 50s, actually, leprosy was considered a terrible disease, which was incurable, frightening, monstrous, and many other things. Even the Ayurvedic medicine considers it to have a karmic potential to transmit from one life to the next. And therefore, people who had leprosy, they were obliged by the rest of the world they would have considered themselves obliged by their own conscience to stay in isolated colonies. So it's not a coincidence that these ten people, they were together, they were in a group, because they were pariahs, they were living as outcasts, as outside of the human society, who did not want to come near them. And they stood at a distance, which means they knew very well that if they came close, the rest of the world will get scared, afraid, angry, 
and their place was isolated on the fringes of the society. So there was a lot of suffering, but not only physical, but also psychological, mental, social, and of any kind. And they cried to Jesus passing by. Why did they cry? Was any one of them clairvoyant and knew that that was Jesus the Messiah? No. Jesus had been around for three years, and in a small land like Israel, Samaria, Galilee, Judea, and all the other areas, they were relatively a small piece of land, no? and therefore everybody knew already about Jesus. Jesus. There was a lot of talk about Jesus, and of course it was impossible for people afflicted by some of the worst diseases the society could uh, mention at that time, not to know that, hey, there is a hope for your disease. If you are blind, there is a man who gives sight to the blind. If you are a leper, there is a man who casts out leprosy. If whatever, there is a man who is famed that he has performed this miracle, not once, but repeatedly. So, of course, for these people, Jesus was like their last hope, like... uh, And uh, they probably heard from people, okay, he's coming around this area. So they were just lurking. They were sitting there in wait. They didn't need there to come too close to the regular community because they would have been punished. They would have been stoned. They would have been maybe killed. They would have been beaten, cast away even more because the normal society told them, you guys stay out. Never come close. They were not allowed to drink from the water wells. They were. They had a very terrible destiny in those days. And now, because they heard that Jesus is coming, they had been waiting there for three days probably, or for a whole week. And then finally something which looked like Jesus come came by. So all they could do is that from 50 meters away... They would call and say, Jesus, you are our Jesus. We hope you are Jesus and we're not wrong. Jesus, Master, have pity on us. They knew that Jesus was full of mercy, full of compassion, that Jesus had done this before many, many times, and therefore they knew that they stood a chance, and thus they asked When he saw them, so finally Jesus took awareness of them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Obviously, it doesn't take that much. You'd say, oh, Jesus knew some neuro-linguistic programming, and he said, since these people are believing that I can do it, let them just go and do some ritual with a priest, say, a guy called Jesus sent me to the synagogue, and here I am, say a prayer for me, and they said, and then suddenly the leprosy disappeared. This is uh, the false theory based, uh, or released by people, who think that Jesus based his healings on placebo, self-suggestion, self-hypnosis. Of course, placebo, self-suggestion, self-hypnosis, and other such methods, they do have a potential, and they are part of any healing process. But, of course, in the case of Jesus, 
they had been a blessing. Like Jesus didn't just send them and say, let them 10 people go to the priests and cross fingers and hope that their placebo will be strong enough and they will be healed. And actually he didn't do anything except cleverly manipulate people. That's not what Jesus did. And thus, I'm telling you all this for you to understand that there is more to it. That Jesus did send them and he gave them a special energy. He sent a special angel to each of them. He he basically performed a miracle. He gave them the blessing to be healed. And he said only this thing, that when you go and show yourself to the priest, that's when it will manifest. You can see the beauty of it, that Jesus didn't say, okay, all ten of you, please stand up in a line, like ten meters away, right? Because the disciples were, and the whole group with whom Jesus was traveling, imagine there were tens of people, maybe hundreds of people, they were not ready to get too close to the lepers, no, and if Jesus would have told them to come close, these people would have run away or would have rebuked Jesus and said, come on, man, it's too much. No, and so on. So Jesus could have simply said, okay, all of you stand up in a line. And then I'm saying, abracadabra, hocus pocus, bora bora, coca-cola. And they would have all been healed right in the front of everybody like this. But Jesus didn't do that. I told you many times. Even in the case of Jesus, these many of these many big miracles are on the fringe of people not noticing, not knowing exactly what did actually happen. No, It's very strange because Jesus said that God sent him to perform a hundred miracles, out of which, whatever, 250 miracles, out of which, or uh, 2,000 miracles, the number is not relevant uh, right now. And out of these miracles, some of them were really outstanding, like when he stopped weather, he walked on water, raising dead people from the graves, and things like this with the lepers and the blind, and you know, they are not small things. Many of them were really bad and big things. And Jesus said, I've been given this much to show you so that you believe in me and you believe in the new covenant which I brought to you so that you believe in the message which I brought. So I'm showing you that I'm not just talking. I am doing something to show that I have a warrant for this. But then I'm not doing more. Because I'm not doing these things just from uh, the top of my head. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, it, I think it's time for me to perform a new miracle. He had a sort of a feeling that certain things were on his list. On his to-do list. From God. And therefore, he was always trying to do these things in the way to not disturb the secret of God. Like God sent Jesus and told to him, look, my son, I'm sending you down there because now it's necessary for the human society to get a powerful spiritual impulse from you and the new covenant and you'll have to sacrifice yourself and it's going to be a great heroic thing, unheard of or anyhow something very singular in the history of humanity 
and this and that. But God would have said, if I'm sending you now, and you just go to perform all the miracles in the world at any degree you want, then my camouflage as God being hidden behind the Maya, behind, hidden behind the curtains, is not going to work. Like I've been hiding myself from humanity for thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of years. And now suddenly I'm sending Jesus and everything is just going to be blown open? No, it isn't. Because we cannot take away from people their free choice and the fact that there is a law of silence, a wall of silence, and that God does not intervene vehemently, visibly, extremely rare. And even when it's there, no people say that Virgin Mary showed herself in Fatima, let's say, the Portuguese phenomenon of Fatima, you know. If you see the movies, if you see the documentaries, you will see very clearly that the skeptics doubt it and say it was a weather phenomenon, it was a meteorological phenomenon, it was this, it was that. Like everybody can ask themselves, why on earth doesn't God do 20 overwhelming, blow-in-your-face miracles to shut up all the idiots which contradict his existence. That's precisely why. Because God does not want. He has to leave this ambiguity. There is this twilight zone. There is this margin which needs to be left. It is there because God wants it. Good God could remove any unclarity, any doubt, in a fraction of a second, from any soul. But he does not want to do that. Remember what he said in Kashmiri Shaivas, that the fourth and fifth action of Shiva are that God is hiding himself and God is then revealing himself. It is God who is hiding himself. It's part of the development of the human soul, part of the growth, part of the spiritual evolution of the human being, that there would be no freedom and therefore there would be no proper consciousness should the human being be coerced into belief. And in when Jesus does it, it's like God says, okay, the time has come, you go down there, I will have to poke my finger into the world, we will raise three dead people and we will give sight to 25 blind and to, uh, we'll give health to 100 lepers and to 50 paralyzed people and so on. But even that will be done in such a way that people from the next village will say, come on, really? Did it happen? Uh, I don't think so. I don't have enough evidence. It will always be slippery, not knowing, not evidenced scientifically in such a way that a scientist, an engineer, a skeptic, a materialist, or an atheist, or an agnostic would look at it and say, yes, man. Yes, this was without any doubt. It's never like this. It's never. And therefore, even when Jesus came, 
he came, there were the miracles were a little bit big, humanity was a little bit flashed, and like, what? Uh, you know, there was a shock, but even that shock thing, it worked on less than 50% of the population, because most people voted against Jesus when there was a popular vote about his popularity and salvation. And uh, until today, whatever evidence was left, it was wiped out, it was ambiguous, it was non-conclusive. So Jesus loves this way of doing. Some people will see and will increase in faith. And for the other people, it will be like, uh, what did just happen? Like, did he actually do something? He told the people, go to the priests. So maybe God did it via the priests. In this way, Jesus is not spending his credit, because he has a credit with God, like how much worth of miracles he can do. And he's spending that credit. In three years, three years and a half, he spent all that credit. And therefore, he... Uh, is not wanting to spend chaotically that credit of miraculous actions which he is doing. And he is doing it in a certain style, with a certain measure. There are other factors. Also, Jesus wants to be modest. Although he thinks that he is the Son of God, the Son of Man, and he agrees that he is the Messiah that God sent to the Jews. Nevertheless, Jesus never brags. He speaks with confidence about his mission, but he doesn't want to brag. So basically, when he says to ten lepers, go and show yourself to the priest, to the temple, to the synagogue, and people go to the temple and they say, oh, there is this, he said, we should show us. Okay, okay, blessed be you, holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God. They would have given them some prayer, some blessing, something, and then suddenly they said, you know what, my leprosy has disappeared. Oh, glory be to God. See what a great mercy God did to you. Like Jesus wanted clearly to induce the thing. Forget about Jesus. I didn't do it. God did it. Even like this, for example, in Islam, repeating this in another, on another octave, in another order, in another style, Jesus, uh, Muhammad refused to have his image painted reproduced, no? And he said, you know, when Muhammad dies, Muhammad dies, not the Islam. The Islam lives with or without Muhammad. Muhammad is just a human being. He's temporarily there. You should not make your belief in Allah depend on Muhammad. That's why in the Islamic religion, it is forbidden to depict the prophet Muhammad, it is forbidden to make icons, statues, idols, and other such things, so that you don't make the impression that the prophet Muhammad was the Alpha and the Omega. No, in this way. In the same way, Jesus, although he was the Alpha and the Omega in the new covenant which came through him, nevertheless, Jesus is trying to preserve a certain modesty. Like, okay, it's not about Jesus. Now Jesus is here. In a few years, 
in a few months for the case, in a few, in a short time, Jesus will not be here anymore. Does it mean there cannot be people healed from leprosy after Jesus is gone? No, there were many people healed of leprosy by his disciples, by rituals, by blessings. There have happened miracles along the history now and then. No, Ramakrishna healed the people from leprosy. Francis of Assisi healed some people from leprosy. No, and therefore, it's not that... So, Jesus is trying to step in the background. Like, okay, you believe in me. I am assuring you that you will be healed. I am secretly sending some angels or entities or mental power in your aura so that you will be healed in six hours from now. But let's play a funny game of hide and seek in which this will happen only when you go to the synagogue and show yourself to the priest. And in this way, there will be the thing, did the priest heal me? Did the prayer heal me? Did the synagogue heal me? Did the rituals heal me? Or did Jesus heal me? And in this way, Jesus is trying to minimize his impact. People think that he's always trying to maximize. But Jesus was doing a lot of things. He didn't need to maximize, only in terms of efficiency. But look, in this situation, it says that people went, probably together, and they were cleaned. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. So being a Samaritan, he was not a pure-breed Jew. He was not one of these Jews. He had another version of the religion, and in the Jewish society, he was an outcast. He was a Gentile. He was a non-Jew. He was a Goy. He was a, an outsider in this thing. And funnily enough, this Samaritan, and remember the parable with the Samaritan woman and with the good Samaritan, Jesus encountered often Samaritans because he was moving through Samaria, through their own province, which was, you know, there were Jews living in Samaria, Judaic Jews, archetypal Jews, synagogue Jews, but there were also Samaritans and other people from other minorities, tribes, Gentiles, other cultures, and parallel religions and other things which lived in the area. So Jesus had encountered them often. And here, and at least two, three times in other places, Jesus praised some of these Samaritans because they behaved better than the Jews. He doesn't say that the Samaritan culture or religion is better. He, he would never say such a thing. No, because it was not better. But he was also noticing that many people from the Jewish community, including the priests and others, they were developing very ugly qualities of their soul, very ugly greed, very ugly egoism very ugly, lack of grat gratefulness and so on. And he was pointing it often. Look, that Samaritan, he did better than you. He didn't do it to put them down. He did it just to stir their uh, faith, to stir their religiousness. And he simply said, you must do better. 
when the Samaritans do like this, you must do better. Here we have the same story. There were 10 lepers. We don't know how many of them were actual Jews and how many of them belonged to others. Now they were united in their misery. When they were all lepers living in a colony, nobody paid attention. They were outcasts anyway. So they were consuming their misery. They were consuming their bad karma together. But the funny thing that Jesus healed them in a very discreet way, like they went to the synagogue and then they said, see, God healed us. But the question is, why didn't God heal you yesterday or a year ago when you haven't met with Jesus? Right now you meet with Jesus. He does like this. You go to the synagogue and then the healing comes. Is that just a coincidence? Are there coincidences in processes in phenomena like this. And that's why, of course, there are no coincidences. But Jesus is always, and God is always hiding behind these coincidences. So people say, maybe it's just a coincidence. That's what people have a religion based on coincidences, which is called materialism, skepticism, agnosticism, atheism. No, because you always say it's possible that it was just a coincidence. So in this way, uh, they were there, and one of them, you see, this man had more consciousness. He had more conscience. He was uh, more grateful, you know, he couldn't say, I like, I was a leper for God knows for how many years until now. I was out of the society, and now I'm okay. And it seems it's due to this man who just passed by and whom we specifically asked to have mercy on us. And he did something which I can't understand. He said, go to the temple. So he could have done it without sending them to the temple, but he just wanted to play this game. You know? And then I'm healed. And this man simply felt faith. He felt belief. He felt devotion. And definitely he felt gratitude, you know, and he said, whatever it was, I have to say thank you. So he went and threw himself at his feet and said, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't know what you did, how you did, but look, I'm clean again. Theoretically, as Jesus, you would like to see all ten coming back and saying, it's solved. Thank you very much. You know, at least give you a sign of gratitude, not because of the ego, but as a sort of a feedback. No, it's a ping and pong with the world. No? And Jesus then asked, just to make the point, because the point is clear. Jesus asked, were not all ten, all of you, you were ten a few hours ago, were not all ten of you cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? So this was a foreigner. You know, Some of the others may have been proper Jews. Traditional Orthodox Jews. You know? Then he said to him, Rise and go, your faith has made you well. Like, does it mean that the other nine are not well? No, because the text says that they were cleansed. But, you know, a human being doesn't have just one problem. A human being has many, many problems. And many of them are not physical, but are in the soul. Neurosis, fear, shame, guilt, violence, ego, impurities, all the things of the lower chakras, 
greed and laziness and confusion and jealousy and disturbed mind and, you know, unrealistic imagination and phantasmagoria, anger, you know, all the things which you can find impure in the human being, you know. And therefore, we are discussing about diseases of the body, diseases of the energy body, but there are also diseases of the emotional body and diseases of the mind. And the diseases of the emotional body and the diseases of the mind are way more serious than the diseases of the physical body. Although the ones of the physical body are more visible, but then there is the inner thing which is closer to your soul, more intimate, and therefore it is very relevant. And therefore you can be sure that one like Jesus didn't take the healing away from the other nine, saying the bastards, I healed them, and they didn't even come to say thank you. Because he didn't tell them, go show yourself to the priest, be cleansed, then come and report to me. He let it open, just to see what their reaction will be. Because God is playing this game, and Jesus acts in the name of God, and therefore he imitates God perfectly. He does what God does, what God, what he has by resonance understood or got from God. And therefore he acts like God and he leaves it open because God leaves many things open so that you can have your own contribution, your own free will, your own things to it. And uh, Jesus sees that the other nine didn't come and he mentions it, you know, like, don't think I'm stupid. Don't think I haven't seen it. Just this foreigner had the heart chakra. At least maybe it's a gratitude on Manipura, not even on the heart chakra. But the sort of the, the good character. Just this foreigner had the good character and come and say thank you when actually everybody got the gift. No? So he mentions it like, The history, even 2,000 years later, we mention it, you know. It's a lesson which he gives to the humanity, you know, like, are you doing the same? Are you acting the same? No? There have been many people who obtained huge benefits from yoga. Did they at least say thank you to their teachers? Did they express any gratitude? Or they were like the other nine and disappeared. And then he says, rise and go, your faith has made you well. That's obvious. Why is he saying that? He went to the synagogue and he got well. And it's valid for the other nine as well. So you can be sure that by saying these words, he gave him a deeper blessing, an extra blessing. Like saying, out of the ten, you are the one in whom I am most pleased and therefore, uh, your faith has made you well. It means Jesus probably took away from him a lot of other spiritual, mental, emotional problems. He got an additional blessing, which is not clarified here, like you can't see it. But Jesus was pleased in him. And therefore, he said, you are a real good guy. You know, your faith has made you well. 
which is a very big statement. It doesn't refer only to the leprosy. It, re it refers to all and everything. No, like that is the kind of person who is ready to reach the kingdom of God because Jesus has made him well through and through. So let's not forget this, that there has to be gratitude. No, it is written in the Jewish scriptures, I forgot exactly where, that the one that does not give thanks to God will lose the gift. God gives you a gift. No, and then you take it for granted. No, and you are not expressing gratitude. Then, G then some Jewish texts, which are preserved in the Christian Bible as well, in the so-called Old Testament, no. there it is said that doing so, you show very little gratitude, and that shows that the character has not improved, and the same mistakes will be repeated, and the person will find themselves in the same place, like the lesson has not been learned. When one says thank you, thank you, thank you, then the lesson has been learned. And then Jesus continues with other teaching. It says, once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Once. But was this like the look or the storyteller here, because Luke was going with Paul, was the physician who was walking with Paul, and Paul never met Jesus, but he heard the stories from Peter and the other uh, ten apostles. No, there were twelve. And then Paul came and became one of them. And um, it's like, did, does the storyteller say, oh, once, oh, by the way, I remember, now Jesus was going to Jerusalem, right? He was on his way to Jerusalem. It's the final stage of his life. And then he says, oh, by the way, once Jesus, when the Pharisees, like, is that another teaching that is, cannot be verified in the timeline? Or it happens in that interval between this thing with the lepers, but not yet to Jerusalem. So it's Maybe there, one week, two weeks, one month, two months, while Jesus was getting closer, drawing closer to the Passover time and to Jerusalem. And it's not known exactly where, in which village it was. And if it was uh, in the first week of this interval, or in the last week, just before going to Jerusalem. And therefore, the narrator, the writer, simply says, I've also heard this one. The Gospel of Luke is more unclear about some of these things for the very simple reason that Luke is a third-hand teller. He's not first-hand witness. He's not even second-hand witness. He, because Paul was second-hand witness, he is third-hand witness from Paul who got it from the other apostles. So it simply tells us once, most probably in these final weeks, of Jesus. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. The Pharisees were hypocrites and knowledgeable in the Jewish law. So these people were like, uh, you know, 
Uh, I'm going to ask you, it's exactly like the people who take the teachings of Ramana Maharishi. They learn them by heart and then they start giving you all sorts of quotes about what is Atman, how is Atman, what is the Supreme Self and all that. Yeah, But they haven't reached the Self. They don't have spiritual experiences. And if you say something which differs, they will... Uh, assault you, they will mock you, they will accuse you, don't know what you are talking, the scriptures, or Sri Ramana Maharishi says like this and like that, you know, like they would know better. So the Pharisees were always trying to catch Jesus with inadvertencies to the script, to the Jewish scriptures, and always to catch him because they knew that he was not a professional rabbi, you know, and try to kind of... Uh, Maybe he will say something profoundly wrong, profoundly outrageous. Jesus was not afraid to say things which were scandalous in the meaning like you never heard that one before or this one is something which comes right now. It's new. It comes from me with me. But of course, Jesus, both scholarly and intuitively, he was fully aware of the Jewish lore, so he always gives wonderful answers which take what was known until that time and pushes it one step further into the realm of the theology, into the realm of knowing the divine. So he was asked by the Pharisees, when did the kingdom of God will come? Because Jesus told them that one of the things of his mission that now that he comes and makes this new covenant with humanity, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God becomes possible. The apostles and all those who will believe and everybody, they can go to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is coming. He is the herald of the kingdom of God, which was not put clearly like this in the Jewish theology until that time. And then the Pharisees always felt provoked by it, the scribes, the Pharisees and others, because it's like, okay, now you have redefined the goal, you have put a new carrot, and you have hanged a new carrot in front of our noses, and now we are supposed to chase the kingdom of God. That's not what Moses said. That's not what Abraham said. That's not what Elijah said. No, so this guy is a new prophet and now he comes and reframes the whole thing and he said, well, what the prophets told you is about the fact that human beings, they have to reach the kingdom of God. And he said, it's coming. I'm opening the door. It's possible for all of you. Come get some light. Come get the Holy Spirit and all that. And they are provoked by the concept because it's, it's new and it's something which they cannot check by the scriptures. <clears throat> so they ask him, when is this coming? Like, what is it? No, like, it's a project. Like, God is going to open the door on the 5th of January, or something like this. And Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. A famous story, being Kadosh, 825 stupid things to do every day, which multiplied and multiplied every century until they became hundreds of meaning, like you have to switch off the electricity on the Sabbath day with a monkey or with a Filipino slave or servant 
who is not a Jew and therefore is a goyim, and uh, it doesn't matter. You know, he he's a an half animal anyway, and he can flip the switch because he has no God, no Sabbath, no observance, no kadosh rules. But also, he will not be saved. He's not the chosen one. He's not among the chosen ones. You know, and. Jesus slaps them. Remember, a whole society was observing rules. Like tens and hundreds of them. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Like observing rules and playing this game. He basically puts down their whole scaffold, their whole society. He says, your society is based on the fact that you try to observe 800 rules, do this and not do that, no? which is not entirely true. No? Because, for example, if one does not observe the commandment not to kill, one will accumulate a terrible karma by killing other people. If one is not observing the commandment to not fornicate, which we call brahmacharya in yoga, then one will lose their ojas, and then one will not have the devotional, the devotional and mystical power to long for God, to think about God, to aspire after God, and to kind of rise and pray and move to God. And thus, uh, of course, some observances are there, because it's not that Jesus left no observances. It's like Jesus could have said, uh, they, of course, by the way, there are some observances that you still have to keep, even with what I tell you, with the kingdom of God. But, you know, he wanted to make a case. Jesus was provocative, radical in some ways, and he says it's not about this culture of obsession with observances. It's not about this. No, it's not this. This has no priority. Of course, it's common sense that some observances. The Christians also had many observances, tens and maybe hundreds of observances. But the spirit, done in another spirit, not like the observances are going to save me. No, there is something beyond the observances. The observances are only a scaffold. A launch pad, but then when you launch your rocket up in the skies, in the skies, the scaffold has outlived its usefulness. No, it's not the scaffold which matters anymore beyond a certain degree of evolution. So Jesus tells them very clearly, no, it's like not the kingdom of God doesn't come with your careful observation, no, which is shocking and it's like, Disturbing, like we did this for the last 30 years. And now it tells us it was useless or almost useless. Yeah? Nor will people say, here it is or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is within you. As the hippies said in the 60s, the way out, out of samsara, the way out of the prison is in. Therefore, 
The kingdom of God does not mean an external reality. Of course, there are locas where the people who have reached the kingdom of God are, where their soul is now. In Hiranya Loka, in Shambhala, in Brahma Loka, in other and other super divine and enlightened places, the souls of those are. So it's not that there is, does not exist an external kingdom of God. It has a projection in the physical world, but it corresponds to something in the microcosm, which means it's a state of consciousness. It's something which comes from your chakras, from your energy, from your level of consciousness. And as inside, so outside. As above, so below. There is a contradiction, a, a correspondence, I'm sorry. And Jesus says it very clearly. Don't try to see the kingdom of God outside. Can some people say this is like the kingdom of God? Sure, if you have the luck to be in the paradise place of Satyaloka, the golden age, then there will be places where a hundred thousand enlightened beings live, the masters of Shambhala incarnate just to stretch their legs and do some work on earth. And there you fall in such a community like in Agartha or some other place like this. And then you say, man, this is the kingdom of God. This is paradise on earth. Sometimes, in some places, in some ways, it does exist. But it doesn't mean that you can rely that now somebody can take you to some place on the earth where it is there. If you have genius and sensitivity, if you are a Sahridaya, if you remember the term from Kashmiri Shaivism, if you are moved by Bhavana, then you can see it in glimpses, like Beethoven, when he composed music about the pastoral, in the pastoral symphony, in the symphony number six, which gives a resonance directly with Ananda, with Ananda Mayakosha, with the state of bliss, with the state of beatitude. No? And it's just a natural bliss which comes from nature, from the beauty of the nature and from the peace and harmony and everything being there for a short while. He glimpses it. No? So, but Jesus says, don't start from outside. Start from inside. Paradise, enlightenment, the kingdom of God must first exist inside you. Because if it doesn't exist inside you, you don't see it outside. We have people who come to Kopangan, and when they see it, they say it's like paradise on earth. And then three months later, they are suffering miserably. Then why on earth did you bring misery and pain in paradise? If you came and you live in a place which to you first impression was that it looked like paradise, why did you bring the misery and the ego and the limitation with you? Because it's inside. If you have it inside you, then the outside will not work, will not work for you. And that's why Jesus says clearly, don't just say that somebody shows you external paradise. Because the kingdom of God is within you. My first spiritual teacher said, if the kingdom of God is within you, 
which Jesus says clearly, then is the king of that kingdom in his own kingdom or is he absent? Because the king is the heart of a kingdom. There's no kingdom if there is no king. It's like the queen bee in a beehive. Without the queen bee, the beehive falls apart. There is no unity. There is no coherence. And thus, there must be a king. So if the kingdom of God is in me, then it means that God is in me. And that's the paradox that God is in me and that is represented by Atman, the immortal, the supreme self, the divine self, and I am in God at the same time because all this is God manifested externally. The universe is just the body of God in a mystical way. And God is in me and I am in God at the same time. Nobody can solve this logical conundrum. How is it possible? I'm in God and God is in me. Now, what is the equation between those two? Kashmiri Shaivism has found the boldest way of expressing it. Then, after he said this, that people will say, oh, the kingdom of God, these Phariseans, ask in a very materialistic way, where is this kingdom of God? When will it come? But they expect something. And of course, they would love to catch Jesus with some story which is not well told. And then he said to his disciples, like he answered publicly, and then he was giving extra teaching to the disciples. The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Basically, he says, you live in this clarity, like people when they commune with their guru, they are in the presence of the guru, they felt tired, they felt depressed, the guru is telling them something amazing, and people's heart is awakened again, and they say, now I can take another 24 hours, I can practice some more, I can do more. So Jesus knows these people who have spiritual aspiration and who are with him, they need him. He is there, the giver of inspiration. And he says, uh, the day you will long to see the day, one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it because he knows he will die soon. And after he will die, he will leave this world in a visible way. And then... What will Peter and Matthew and John and Thomas and all the others, what will they do? They will say, where is Jesus to tell us a few inspiring words so that our aspiration and our faith is coming back to us? But he said, you will not have. And that's why, of course, the people, the disciples, they had to become masters themselves. They had to carry the flame in their own hearts, that's why they were enlightened at the day of the Pentecost, no? because otherwise they would have been like dependent on Jesus, like dependent on a drug. It's okay that they were dependent on Jesus for a while. Everybody goes through that stage. Every disciple is dependent on their guru for a while, until they learn to stand up by themselves. So this being said, he continues. He says, "Do men will tell you, there he is, or here he is. People say, there's Jesus. No, 
Today, I was laughing with some friends the other day that we looked on YouTube and we found the 10 most famous people who claim, who live, and who claim that they are Jesus. They are one more ridiculous on the other. You know, like when you see them, you don't know if you want to cry or to laugh because the claims of these pathetic people that they are Jesus, when Jesus E is who he is, you know, like normally you should be shy. You should be humble. You should be, you know, your cheeks should get red with shyness that you just dare to say, I'm Jesus, when you know what a caricature, you know, of Jesus you are. No, it's like nobody who is mentally healthy can say that in good faith. No, and that's the thing. You know, because obviously Jesus says, when I will come again, you will all know what we're talking about. There will not be need for anybody to say, here he is and there he is. Because the second coming of Christ is the end of Kali Yuga. And in the end of Kali Yuga, the tables are wiped clean and the earth is turned upside down and there is a new heaven and a new earth as John says in the book of his revelation. And then there is no more this game that, ah, now God has lifted the veil. God will lift the veil, but it will be too late. Too little, too late. Then there will be no more free choices to be made, because then it's the payday. It's the doomsday, whichever way you want to see it. No pay or doom or whatever it is. And that's why... No, you have to be clear about this thing that it's not like, oh, Jesus could be living in Africa or Jesus could be living in Australia right now or Jesus could be living in Brazil or God. It's all of it ridiculous because Jesus, and Jesus says, don't believe when somebody says, I am he here, he is there, he is and so on. It's not going to be like this. Like, like, oh, I heard that Jesus is again on planet Earth and I'm going to go visit him. When he will be back, everybody will be squashed by his presence. And some will be happy. Some will not be so happy. There will be no more like, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to change my life too little, too late. You know, it will be in the next Kali Yuga. Maybe you try again, you know, in the same conditions, but not when the evidence is there. So Jesus is saying it very clearly. So don't believe that men will tell you, uh, here he is, there he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day, his day is the second coming. Like now I'm going to leave you for a long time. I will be there in spirit. People have seen Jesus in their spirit, in their prayer. But then the Son of Man in his day, when my day will come, Not now, because now they are going to crucify me and they will give the impression that I am weak and that I am nobody, that I am a hippie, that I am a loser. No, but the man, the son of man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. No, so nobody will uh, miss it. Don't worry, you'll not miss it that Jesus has come and he lives in Australia and meanwhile you missed it because you are not watching enough internet or television. That's not the way it will happen. 
Jesus says very clearly, when I come again, it will not be like the first time. The first time was one thing, and the second coming is a totally different story, because that marks the end of the yuga, and that is the, the, the harvest day. That's when people will harvest what they have sowed, what they will reap the result of their action. So he compares himself to the lightning, which is very beautiful. Oh, gives this resonance of Chinamasta coming suddenly like the lightning and flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus is also down to earth and practical, not just a constant dreamer. He says, you know, there has to be some flesh on these bones. You know, like uh, we can dream about my second coming, but more at hand is the fact that in a few weeks I'll be crucified, tortured, beaten, mocked, and I will have to go through a test of tests, through the ultimate test, basically, to become the Christ, to become the Christ consciousness. And he says, you know, I'm more focused on this than on the day, the big day. The big day will also come, but first I have to eat some humble pie. I have to go through a very big valley. So he is aware he doesn't get himself drunk with expectations. Ah, my day will come. You don't know who I really am. And when uh, the day will come, I'll be like the lightning, lighting up the skies, and it will be suddenly, and blah, blah, blah. He knows that, but he has a few things until getting there, and uh, that is very powerful. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the day of the Son of Man. Now, he again speaks about the future, but meanwhile he got this sad interjection, but meanwhile it's going to be terrible, there will be suffering, I'm not going to get there so easily. But then he compares so that people understand, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man, the the day, the big one, the final one. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered in the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Remember, according to the Jewish scriptures, Noah alone escaped from all that civilization, from all that was happening there. 99% died flush. That's probably what will happen on the earth at the time of the doomsday, at the time of the end of Kali Yuga. All the baboons of Kali Yuga will leave the planet forcefully, and uh, there will be some continuation. There will be the seed of the humanity will still be there, but it will be continued in another way by a special breed which will be the evolved ones, the seed of Satya Yuga, the seed of the Golden Age. So basically, he says, think in the time of Noah, they were warned. They saw Noah building the ark with huge effort. They were asking him, and Noah told them clearly what's happening and what God told him. And everybody was eating, drinking, 
marrying and being given in marriage and ignoring, basically saying, ah. That's what people say today about the coming of Jesus. Ah. And when it comes like a lightning, I'm not saying it. It's said emphatically by Jesus here. I just have to respect his words because he knows what he's talking about. And that's why not to listen to this, no, it will be ignorance. It will be the path to ignorance. And then he gives a second example because the story repeated itself. And maybe people don't remember. He says, more recent, after Noah, he says it was the same in the days of Lot, the only man who escaped from Sodom and Gomorrah. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting, planting and building. They were planting trees like there was no more time for the, those trees to grow in Sodom, you know. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Remember, that happened in less than 24 hours. The angels, according to the story, came to the house of Lot. The people in town wanted to sexually abuse them. Insane. No, over the top. No. Then the people somehow... By the morning time or something, they blocked the whole thing. I don't remember exactly the chronology, but the people were at midnight were in the house of Lot, and in the morning they told him, pack, pack superficially, go. And he left. It might have been 7 o'clock in the morning, 8 o'clock in the morning, 9, like we're not talking even about 12 hours between the two moments. And they told him, go. And don't even look back. Go. You know? And all the other people in the city, they were just sleeping after a perverted night. After a night of drinking, drugs, impure sex, and all sorts of other things which were there. No? And Jesus says, were they expecting it? No. They never expected. Look what's happening today. How troubled humanity has become with all the movements and the craziness and the political correctness and all, you know, like they are stretching it to a level which is insane, you know. And when the lightning will strike, it was like never expected it, never seen it coming. He says, it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed, like Jesus will be revealed, like, hey, Idiots, you had an avatar, a major avatar, passing, passing through the earth, on the surface of the earth. No? And you've missed. You've missed. Even the people who are Christians, they missed, because 99% of them, they don't listen to a word of what Jesus says. It's just some surface thing that they go to the church once a year or twice a year, especially to baptize a kid, to attend somebody's marriage, you know, like absolutely svadistanistic, social, superficial things, which don't leave any mark on people's lives. So I'm not talking about the non-Christians who miss the point. I'm talking even about the Christians. Everybody. How many people live 
in the spirit of Jesus beautifully, you know. Then there are all kind of sects who claim that they might be living in the spirit of Jesus, you know. But you take the Mormons, uh, it's not the Bible. It's not the original words of Jesus. Then they came the angel called Moroni, very aptly named, I would say, you know. And Moroni talked to John Smith or whoever, Brian Young or whoever, and gave them a new Bible, a new, you know, like, okay, you know, are those people living in the words of Jesus? Only in a very, very remote but also distorted way. And thus, he says, it will be just like the two examples of Noah and Lot, on the day the Son of Man is revealed. It's like, surprise, surprise, on that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Like Lot, you know, you won't have the time for anything. You won't have the time to go inside your house and take your goods. If God shows you the way, go. No hesitation. This will show the proper spirit, the proper priority. No, Jesus has the priority. God has the priority. Remember what Ruskin said, if you don't give God the first place in your life, you don't give him any place. Because God can never have the second place. Yeah, yeah, God is important, but I have to get my money and my wallet. Your God is money and the wallet. Because if God is there, you will live without money and wallet. If you truly are connected with God. No? There will be moments like the lightning striking. The choice has to be like the lightning. It's exactly like when people die. No, Then there is no time to feed the parrot or worry about who will have sex with your wife. Then you have to focus on Sahasrara directly. You have to go in Brahmarandra directly. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. No, like I was in the field and said, okay, God is coming. I think I'm going home to take new shoes. God doesn't need your shoes and you won't need shoes where you are going. If you get to the kingdom of God. And he says emphatically, remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife looked back to Sodom. Like she lost her house. She'd been walking for one hour. Or five hours or whatever. Far, far back there was a, was the city of Sodom. And nostalgically, she looked back. You are not allowed to look back. This is a metaphor of the spiritual life. When people get in the spiritual life, they don't look back. They go in an ashram, they go in a Tibetan monastery, they go into a Christian monastery. They have very limited contact with the family. Because the family will pull you back in the resonance of who you were before. Now you have to fast, to do vigil, you have to give up your ego, you have to give up your desires, you have to, you are not like who you were six months ago. And the family is bringing all that back to you, like, oh, uh, Walter, Oscar, are you still one of us? 
No, that's precisely the point. The one who wants to go on a spiritual life doesn't want to be one of us anymore. Wants to be one of those. Wants to be one of those in Shambhala. Wants to be one of those, you know, you change your family. Doesn't mean you shouldn't love your family or desert them. But you have to help them from Shambhala. You have to help them from Mount Kailash. You have to help them from Brahmaloka, from Hiranyaloka. You are in a different category. You've been promoted into a different category. No? And therefore, no, it, it doesn't mean that if, uh, I don't know, somebody has been made a peer and became Sir somebody, like by the British style of aristocracy, then their brothers or sisters also become aristocrats. They don't. It's a singular personal thing. One person can be peered in exceptional circumstances. The person who gets enlightened becomes like an aristocrat, is moved to another category. And you don't look back and you say, oh, I was back there, you know. The modern society is trying to destroy this purity, this aristocracy, these things. Remember, the French Revolution and everything. And it's the lack of Vishuddha of people. You have a movie like The Kingdom of Heaven, where a little young man who is a blacksmith in a village, he discovers he is the son of an aristocrat. He is ennobled. He is made an aristocrat, a knight. He goes and participates in the holy wars in the holy land. There he shows a wonderful nobleness of character and he is superior. And in the end, guess what he does? He comes back to the village and he lives like a blacksmith. It's like a knight can be a blacksmith. He is one of us. That's what Akira Kurosawa does with the samurai to put them down. Oh, sometimes samurais are just peasants and they live like peasants and they are peasants who pretended to be samurai like the guy from The Seven Samurai, Toshiro Mifune in that brilliant role and actually they are just peasants. But peasants can be samurai as much as a samurai can be samurai because there is no difference. This is bullshit Marxism and neo-Marxism. It's not true. No? And that's why you, know, you don't look back. You don't look back. Looking back is symbolically illustrated by the wife of Lot. As they were running away from Sodom, the wife of Lot sighed and said, ah, my dear, but Sodom was a shit city. Why did she have a nostalgia for it? But she was having some connections. So what did she, what happened? She was the only one from the family who died. Like the people from Sodom. The whole family was saved, Lot and his daughters, but not the wife. Because the wife was with one foot in one boat and with one foot in the other boat. The wife was trying to ride on two horses. And God doesn't like that. God wants you to choose black or white. No, you come with, if you are not with me, you are against me. There's no midpoint. The wife of Lot was trying to ride on two horses. And guess what happened? She died. She shared the fate of the people from Sodom. 
And that's why Jesus says, that's the spirit. No, like you don't, you don't come from the fields. It will be like the white, the wife of Lot. He says clearly, remember Lot's wife. No, like a little hesitation and you are gone. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. This is a super profound statement, which I have commented in my satsangs on Jesus' sayings, because he said it in other Gospels, and it is one of the real shocking statements. So go wherever you find that commentary in my previous satsangs, where, Jesus, where I commented it in detail. Now I'm just giving you a brief version of it. You try to keep your life, but in Kali Yuga, your life is full of shit. You try to keep your life, you are like the pig who is in in love with his mud. Your soul must escape from the mud like a prisoner that was kept in chain for hundreds of years. And the first opportunity, you fly. You are exasperated. You are desperate. Your soul is longing for the light and for the beauty and for the perfection and for everything which comes with divinity so much. And thus, you try to save your life because your life was not worth that much. Remember what Buddha said, the first noble truth, the essence of life on earth is Pain and suffering. Don't you want to escape from that? Ah, But you know, sometimes life can be good. You will die like the wife of Lot. You are riding on two horses. You You don't make the choice properly. The choice here is very clear. Yeah. So Jesus simply says, you try to say to keep your life, you will lose it. Because your life... As it is, it is a life in samsara. It is a life limited by the physical body in the physical world. Like the people who had near-death experience. And they said, wow, dying is not so bad after all. Wow, death is like an awakening. Death is like knowledge. Death is like an opening of your eye, of your inner eye. Death is like a liberation. You become more free. And therefore, of course, when the karma is good enough, not if you go to hell. And thus, uh, whoever tries to keep his life is attached of the past. Jesus is offering you something big. You have to take it without any hesitation. Don't look back. You try to save your life, you lose it. I explain that in the metaphysical way. That you lose it. Like people who practice spirituality, sometimes they look like they haven't done much. What did Francis of Assisi do? His father wanted to make him the most rich merchant from Assisi. And then he became a hobo who lived in a ruin, built something, wrote some prayers and some songs. He was a hippie. When they asked him to write the canon of the Franciscan order, he didn't manage to finish it and died. He was a loser, incompetent. He was, you know, he was many things. And therefore people, you know, I know people who are business people, 
gophers, doers, achievers, and overachievers who would say, man, if you live your life like that, you lose it. You lost your life, you know, because these people feel the need to do something. But you have to do something spiritually, which means nothing measurable. And for the other people who measure you by physical criteria, it always looks like you fucked it up, like you botched it. And you didn't. Jesus says those who lose, who will try to keep their life will lose it. And whoever will lose his life will preserve it. In another place, he says, whoever will give their life to me, they will save it. I give it to Jesus and become a complete loser. What have you done in your life? Uh, I prayed to Jesus. You know, I've been uh, no good. You have to accept this thing. People get them in their midlife crisis. In their like, well, what have you done with your life? Nothing. I've just given it to God. I've achieved nothing. No? And then you save it. God loves that kind of renunciation, that kind of humbleness, that kind of detachment, that kind of, you know, like, I haven't done anything. No? I, I don't want to be proud about anything haven't done anything to be proud of. No? And then God says, come here. You are mine. You are one of my dear ones. No? You are trying to say, but yeah, but I have done something good. I have saved the dolphins. or something. Yeah, sure. Go to the dolphins. When you die, go to the dolphins. You don't come to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is something where you have to transcend. You have to let go of everything. Remember, the highest value on Sahasrara is detachment. The most difficult of the yamas is aparigraha, the detachment, the non-attachment. No? That's the supreme difficulty. That when you die, like in the art of dying, you have to let go of everything. Just love God. But some people don't love God enough, and then they look back. They want to take with them their parrot or their wife, or their money, or their glory, or their accomplishments, you know? Then you don't take anything. Then you lost it. Which means you will not reach eternal life. You are still in samsara. Of course, if you are in samsara, it doesn't mean you stop existing. But from the standpoint of Jesus, it's black and white, like you didn't make it to the chosen few. And then, okay, karma will rule over. You've done good things you'll get a good reincarnation and a good astral stay. And if you didn't do good things, you're going to taste a lot of bitter karma and you will go in obscure places where you'll suffer. And that's it. But then that's not the kingdom of heaven. Then you are not with Christ, with the Christ. And he says, I tell you, on that night two people will be in one bed... Two people in one bed, you know, he refers husband and wife or something, you know, because he doesn't conceive of gay relationships, you know. Two people will be in one bed. Okay, brothers, it's possible, other possibilities are there as well. But two people sleeping in the same bed, it's very close to each other. Two people will be in one bed, one will be taken and the other one left. Where taken? Taken to nirvana, taken to the kingdom of God, and the other one left. Well, the other one left does not disappear, is not destroyed. But the other one left is left in samsara. 
And the whole point, if you are totally given to spirituality, the whole point is to escape from it. That's what the supreme purpose of a yoga school and of a yoga guru or a spiritual teacher, that's what it is. To teach the highest part of yoga, the top of the pyramid, the apex, where we're talking about the spiritual realization. Yes, there are other things. People achieve paranormal abilities. People have a great life. People are healing themselves and they become therapists and so on. Yes, you can do a lot of wonderful things, but you stay in samsara. If you want to have the possibility to go to nirvana, then you have to let go. You have to let go. You have to have your only love is God. The Jewish prophets, they presented it in a funny way by saying like, God is jealous. God is a jealous master and you want to, you have to choose him over everything else. That's the spiritual law of resonance. That you, when you die, like in this case it's a threshold level, when you die, you have to choose like black and white. No hesitation, no looking back. Then you have to be focused on that. So to show you that he says there will be two people in the same bed, which means not a, somebody from a high category and somebody from a low category. Two people will be in the same bed. They are somewhere similar. One will be over the bottom line and the other one will be below the bottom line. One will be taken to God by God and the other one will be left to spin in samsara for another 100,000 years or whatever it takes. No? Two women will be grinding grain together. A very village image. Two women grinding grain on a mill, you know, in a mill, in a miller installation. Two women will be grinding grain together. They're good friends from the same village, neighbors, maybe the same family. One will be taken and the other one left. He is very sharp to make people understand that like you know there is no compromise there is no it's like yes or no there is no middle result you are taken or left it's as simple as that like the wife of Lot was not half escaped with Lot and his daughters she unfortunately was killed on the spot (coughs) which is Showing, you know, that these are not things to take lightly and to joke about. Because here the choice of God is existential, evolutionary, and there is no way to bargain with it or to fake it or to do anything about it. And then somebody asks the disciples, says, because it says one will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. Again, they think the kingdom of heaven is somewhere on Mount Kailash. No, or in Shambhala or something. So they say, where, Lord, will they be taken? No, either this is an attempt of irony, or it is still a very narrow mind, a very obtuse mind, where they don't really like, what's he talking about? He replied, where there is... Where there is a dead body, there 
the vultures will gather. He gives a horrible image. In those days, some dead people who had no funeral, no family, they were eaten by the vultures, especially in the desert conditions. And he says, people, he says, some will be taken, some will be left. And he says, where? And he gives a totally crazy answer. He says, wherever there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. No? Like where there is garbage, it's garbage. Where people died in Sodom and Gomorrah or wherever people died, drowned by the flood of Noah, the vultures had plenty to eat. There was a lot to consume. The vultures are in a certain way the, sim- the, the symbol of samsara, of entropy, of decadence. You know that things are decaying and some things go into the light of God and they are unentropic, they become spirit, they become salvation, they become nirvana and purusha. And where there is not that, you are back in samsara, back in prakriti, and there the vultures will gather. The tiger is eating the antelope, death is the ruling condition, ignorance, and all that. So then it's like a roulette. Then better luck next time. Then you have to try again another time. So Jesus is telling to people, if you can summon up your love of God, if you can summon up your aspiration, if you can summon up your awakening, like be prepared, be snappy, go, no, go for God, because of course there will be a day of the end of the cycles. There's always an end of summer, an end of autumn, an end of winter, an end, you know, like we are living in limited time and space, and therefore everything has an end. Everything which had a beginning has an end. For you subjectively, your end is the end of your life, which is your own judgment day. When you die, you go through a sort of a partial judgment. There is a big one in the end of the Kali Yuga which is the judgment for the whole cycle of the universe for the last 26,000 years. No, It's the big exam, it's the graduation. But until then, everybody has an exam again and again whenever they die. And whenever you die, it's the same thing. So, Jesus here is again his typical uncompromising black and white thing, you know, He simply says, if you want to live a spiritual life to the full extent of it, then there is no compromise. Two people sleep in the same bed, one will get it, one will not. It doesn't mean it's a law that every two people who are... There will be somewhere two people who both are enlightened. If Ramakrishna slept in the same bed with Sarada Devi, in the end both were taken although Ramakrishna died much earlier. But, you know, both were enlightened beings. Don't take it literally. The point of it being that it could be, that it could be that like there will be a division which will separate the black from the white very clearly. And there is no argument, no compromise, no plea. No, there is no way of going around it. Therefore, if you feel that your soul 
wants to reach immortality and light, do not spare any effort. Be alive, be awakened, do what you do. Yes, I am also human and we are all human. And sometimes we have moments of weakness and days of weakness and months of weakness and years of weakness. But you always have to push and push and push whatever you can, whenever you can. Your spiritual life has to be as alive as possible because the day will come in this life or in the next and when that day is coming two people are sleeping in the same bed one is taken one is not and you want to be the one who is taken and therefore you know people say where jesus answers wherever there is dead bodies there are vultures as well like samsara is a place of entropy a place of death a place of decay a place where things are decadent and like what can you expect where there is a dead body there are vultures it is a world which is not into the place of the vultures and dead bodies where will they be taken somewhere else somewhere where there are no dead bodies and therefore no vultures but Jesus is promising this supreme existence, this Brahma Loka, this high realm of existence. I would say it is enough for tonight. These were beautiful teachings. I hope you got some aspiration from listening to the voice of Jesus telling some of his uncompromising things. Slowly, slowly, we continue with this. As I said, if there will be another theme coming up, because a few special teams have been asked for, and when I will feel that I have the special energy or the time to prepare to talk to you about those themes, then it will be announced that now it's not the Gospel of Luke, it will be a special satsang about this and about that. Therefore, feel free to keep suggesting themes for satsangs which you want to listen to, because we are... uh, keeping them, we are storing them, and whenever the time is right and the, or the, the energy is right, we will go there. With this, we have finished for tonight. Thank you for joining this satsang, and I will see you in your spiritual travel.